Recorded live. We are talking about First John, but we were we are talking about that in order for us to be cleansed in the blood, we must be in the fellowship of those who walk in the light. Those are all conditions to being cleansed by the blood in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 2. We have to walk in the light. That's the truth. We must be in fellowship with one another who walk in the light. And then we are going to be cleansed in the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is so critical that all of God's promises are resting upon the foundation of you being cleansed from your sin only by the blood of Christ. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and just a a few verses here. For how much more will the blood of Christ, this is verse 14, Hebrews 9 verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit or the spirit of the age offered himself, offered himself, Jesus offered himself as a living sacrifice. He offered himself encumbered with sin. Did I get somebody opposing? Good. Good, you are alive. That's right. He, without blemish to God, that's what qualified him for the blood offering for you. Cleanse your conscience. You know why folks go through life with a conscience that is defiled? Because they've never come to grips with the power of faith that when they've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, they're free from the guilt of sin and their conscience is clear. See, you can have all the psychology you want. You can go you can get your doctor's degree. It won't do you one ounce of good if you don't understand that the only way to deal with the guilt of sin having fallen short of the grace of God, is to deal with the sin, and the only way of dealing with it, God has provided, and that's through the sacrifice of his son who shed his blood, and when we come under that blood, we have that forgiveness of sin. That's the message of the church. Perverted almost everywhere you go, unfortunately. Let's look at verse, go on in the same chapter, down to verse 20, <clears throat> saying, this, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, in verse 20, and that was, that was relating to the old law, now in verse 22, and, and according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. See, it, God established that in all of society, universally, worldwide, that things sin, guilt, cleansed with 
flood. Not with a not with an upbeat choir. Now I tell you, I love an upbeat choir. But you can sit through choirs from now to doomsday and go right straight to hell. That's not the solution. All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is very little forgiveness. Now, somebody's not following because you did not respond to that, did you? What does it say? There is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Forgiveness is the issue. Sin is the cause for the need of forgiveness, and that's the promise throughout the Old Covenant for four or 5,000 years is the forgiveness of sin. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It doesn't make any times how, doesn't make how, it makes no difference at all how many times you jog around this church building. You you can remember Black Sambo? You know, he he ran until he turned into butter. Remember that story? It was a little fairy tale. I guess we don't tell that anymore. But it was a good story. Had nothing to do with their nationality or anything. It had to do with running in circles until you finally just turn into butter. <laughs> it doesn't make any difference whether you're Green or purple or blue. It doesn't make any difference. It makes no difference at all. The point of that story was that if you are just running around in circles all your life, you just turn to butter. You have no substance. You have to have a path. You have to have a direction. But now, here he's talking about in our text in Hebrews 22, there is, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's the theme of the Bible. That's the theme all the way through, pointing in one direction, not going around in circles, heading one way, and that there would be the ultimate sacrifice whose shed blood would be adequate for all of those who became willing participants in it. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go down to verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, your buying back into God's favor is not based on anything but this. You are not redeemed with things that perish, like silver or gold about the most imperishable things there are, molecularly speaking. You were not redeemed with perishable things from your futile way of life. Your way of life won't get you anywhere in terms of God's inheritance reserved for you by buying a redemption. Can't do it. What turns you and redeems you from your futile way of life 
no matter how well you think it's being run, that, that you have inherited from your forefathers, but in verse 19 is the punchline. You have been redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, that of Christ. He was, <coughs> he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now, that gives to you the purpose of Jesus' coming, the sacrifice of his blood, the shedding of his blood, enables you to be forgiveness of your, forgiven of your past, forgiven of your sins, to where you can come into the inheritance that God had in mind for you. That's pretty simple. Folks, that's the good news. Let's go now in three verses I, I, three different contexts. I need to go one in, uh, one in review first. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to define the gospel. Then we're going to go back to Romans. We've been there before. We're going to go again in, in Romans chapter 6. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's review from last week. Let's review again here the definition of gospel because the gospel, as we've stated already, is the good news that God has a way for you to enter into his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. God has a way for you. Some of you may not care one way or the other, but folks, you need to care because if you are not going to inherit the kingdom, your other inheritance is death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I make known unto you in verse 1, what? The gospel. Now, it's what I've preached, you've received it, and now you've taken your stand in it. The church at Corinth had heard what I've just got through talking about. They had, uh, they had received it with open arms, had embraced it, and they had taken their stand upon that. And in verse 2, it's through that by which you are saved you begin your salvation process right there. But you have to hold fast to that truth in verse 2. And then he tells us the definition of what he means in verse 3. I have delivered to you as the first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So what's the first part of the gospel of Christ is that he, in this verse, did what? He died. We've already verses to that effect today. Because in his death, he did what? He shed his blood. And if you have a dead man, what do you do with him in verse 4? What's the second thing you do to somebody that's dead? They've died, now you, you bury him. That's how we usually do it. We don't bury him first and hope they die. See, that's the Baptist theology. They, have a, they, they immerse, but they, they have it backwards as to why you're being immersed. Because they immerse after the standard of John the Baptist. It's backwards. We don't want to go there. So first of all, he says, the first thing 
that establishes the base of our gospel is that Christ died. The second one is, that proves that he was a man. He could die. He died. He died according uh, for our sin in harmony and in agreement with what the Bible has said in the Old Covenant. Then he was buried. That's the natural thing to do to someone who has died. And then it says in verse 4, not only was he buried, but thirdly he was done what? He had, had what? He did what? He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He, everything he did, even when he was dead, was according to the Scripture. Wow, that's wonderful. And then there were evidences of his resurrection. He had in verse 6, 500 at one time saw him. Most of them remain until the time that Paul was writing this gospel to the church at Corinth. And then he says, last of all to me, Paul, an untimely one. So there were evidences of him after his resurrection. So we can have a firm, confirmed view historically of Jesus dying, being buried, and having been raised out of the dead. Now, let's go over. That is how he defines the gospel. Now, if you will go with me over to 2 Thessalonians and verse uh, chapter 1. Second <clears throat> Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. <clears throat> that he's going to deal out retribution. Now, I'm, I'm taking this out of the middle of a context. The to- context is talking about a different issue. We're going to use it for uh, something else right now. Taking out of, uh, dealing out rest- retribution <clears throat> to, those who do not go- to those who do not know God. So you better ask yourself, do I really know God today? Because if I don't know God, I am the subject of his retribution. Now he's speaking about a particular event taking place just later than when this book was written. But it is still a true principle today that if you do not go God, if you do not know God, you will know him through his retribution of you and toward you. Those who do not know God, and to those, and here's the phrase we want to focus in on, for those who do not obey, what? The, what's it say in the text? The gospel. So you see, we've defined the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, he tells that it's based on what three things? The death, the burial, and the resurrection. Here he says the gospel is something that has to be obeyed. You have to obey it. Well, how do you obey, how do you obey the death, burial, and resurrection? Well, let's go to Romans chapter 6. We'll read that, and that will be our final context today. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> what shall we say then? If grace is so great and I, I don't have to worry about sin anymore, Paul says to those people who are thinking that way, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound or grace may increase? May it never be. Don't think of grace that way because God is gracious, that you can just get away with everything, that you can sin today and be forgiven tomorrow. So might as well sin again today so that tomorrow you can sin again I mean, and keep giving for gig. Well, sure, 
That may be factual, but that shows you an intent of heart that God won't buy. We are not to continue in sin so that grace may increase or abound. May it never be. How shall we have who have died to sin still live in it? Now he begins to tell us how we obey the gospel. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus, not into Jesus, because why would that do you any good to be baptized into Jesus? Because Jesus was, that was his human name. He wasn't Christ until after his resurrection. That's when he was appointed as Christ. He was Jesus the Christ after his resurrection. He was Jesus the man in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See, if you're going to be a Baptist, you would be baptized, according to John the Baptist, into Jesus. That's how they baptized the Jews. But we want to be Christians. So we have to be baptized into what it was that establishes all of the gospel. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his what? So how could he have possibly told the thief on the cross to be baptized? People will say, well... Jesus didn't tell the thief on the cross to be baptized. Why? Because they were living under the old covenant. They were still living under John the Baptist. They weren't living under Christ. They still were being baptized according to the law and the provisions of that under the law, according to John the Baptist. But now in Jesus' time, when he has died and been buried and risen again, now he's the Christ and he's the Lord. And when we are baptized into Christ Jesus, Jesus the man who became the Christ, now we have been baptized into his... See, that's how we obey the gospel when it says the gospel is that he first of all died. Now we discover how it is we can obey that gospel when we obey the command to be baptized into Christ Christ Jesus, Acts 2.38. Uh, Luke, or Acts 22:16, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins. We realize now that that's the first part of our obedience is to be baptized into Christ Jesus. And when we do so, we are doing in form what Christ did in reality. We are identifying with his death. Now, folks, that's where his blood was shed. That's when you have, that's when you are given by God the merit of the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of all of your sin and brings you into a covenant relationship so that Christ is now your high priest and when you sin again, you can come to him and ask him to forgive you and it says he will do so. That's our text in 1 John 1. The blood of Christ continues to cleanse us from all sin. That's where we're, you know, that's our key text. Now, notice in verse 4 of Romans 6, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. I know these are not new. We've been over and over these. They have to be reestablished. The gospel, we have to know what it is. The gospel is something that can be obeyed, and we obey the gospel when we do inform what Christ did in reality. For in verse 5, if we have become, notice that big if, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, folks, there is no way to become like Christ by avoiding identifying with him in his death. And baptism is the only means that God has given to us whereby we can do that. If we have become buried with him or united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly, that's our assurance, then we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You are buried with him. You become identified with him. And when you are identified with him in his death, you can become contact with his blood because that's where he shed his blood, was in his death. That is your contact with the blood of Christ. That's where the forgiveness of sin takes place. That's where you become a joint heir with Christ. Heirs of God. Sons of Abraham is when you are baptized into Christ. That's where everybody wants to be. But not, not everybody is willing to do it God's way. If we become united, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, now we have an assurance that we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's the evidence of your resurrection. So we have to continue then our Christian life by becoming united with him in his death because that's where we become a partaker of or the, uh, the uh, recipient of the blessings of the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. We contact the blood in, our forgive, in, in, in uh, Christian baptism. God has set that up as a beautiful way. He didn't tell you to go out of back and do a back of a building somewhere and drive a stake. And then remember where the stake was. People do not forget when they've been baptized. They don't, re- they don't forget that. We had 38,000 people in an assembly one time, and I heard, heard the speaker. His last name was Gothard. And I had attended two or three seminar, seminars of him. And he said, now, it would never deal with the subject of baptism. He says, if you want to know that you're saved, you, you invite Jesus into your heart, go out to the farthest, remotest place on your piece of property and take a stake and drive it in the ground. And that will be your reminder that you had invited Jesus into your heart and you will be saved based on that driven stake. Every church in this town believes that way. Folks, that is as false and phony as it gets. But people like that. They would rather drive a stake. And he was just using that as a symbol. But you see, we... God has given us the symbol. And the real symbol is water baptism because it most closely identifies what it is to be buried in water in the likeness of Christ's death. Then in that burial where Christ shed his blood, his blood is applied to you 
and you rise to walk in the newness of life as a child, pure and innocent, with now access to God through Christ, your high priest, to keep you cleansed under the blood. And the Lord's Supper is our weekly reminder of that covenant. Let's stand as we sing.